You're listening to Smith Talk with Keith Smith. That would be me, free-thinking American educator, bringing you conservative commentary and analysis on the news of the moment, along with life advice and random facts. Currently, I teach civics and economics to high school seniors. I am a U.S. military veteran, active duty Air Force, Army National Guard, and Air Force Reserve. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. I haven't posted anything as far as episodes go for the last couple of weeks. Reason being that I got a cold and lost my voice being a school teacher. Uh, This happens from time to time. Talk a lot all day long, especially at the beginning of the school year and get a cold and you throw that into the mix. Anyway, lost my voice and kind of funny in my classroom, I had to use a lapel mic and a Bluetooth speaker. I've had to do that a couple of times. So my voice was so shot that I couldn't talk, had to speak in a really low voice amplified through a speaker and it was kind of some of my students told me it sounded like ASMR. Anyhow, I'm going to give it a shot today. I have some things that I really have been wanting to talk about for some time and we'll start it out here. I have a story for you and I I love teaching. I love what I do. I teach high school seniors, U.S. government, so uh, civics, U.S. government, economics, and I tell my seniors, uh, my students, this is the most important class you're going to take this year. And I promote discussion. I have a sign up in the front of my classroom above the whiteboard that says, question the assertion. And I give my students a big spiel at the beginning of the year about not taking at face value or for granted anything that anybody says to them to question everything, because that's the way you become a lifelong learner. You question, you learn, you find out for yourself. And right below that, at the bottom of the board, I have a quote from Vladimir Lenin. A lie repeated often enough becomes the truth. And I explained to my students that Vladimir Lenin did not mean that it was a bad thing to lie. He was not saying don't lie. What he was saying was we will lie. In fact, we will lie. We will cheat. We will steal. We will murder because the ends justify the means. And I attempt to impress upon my students the importance that they not become, as Lenin would say, would what the term he used, useful idiots, gullible people who can be spoon-fed information and will just take for granted that it's fact. I tell my students, don't believe everything you hear, everything you read on the internet. In fact, don't take for granted that everything I tell you is fact. I tell my students, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm going to attempt to give you accurate information. Occasionally, I I do put a disclaimer on it. Occasionally, as part of a lesson, I will deceive students on purpose, but I always tell them later on in the lesson and reveal it to them. And it's, it's part of a learning process. And I do that on purpose, playing devil's advocate with them or something like that, trying to get them to think. And and I tell my students this, and I, I want them to learn to think for themselves. And when it comes to political issues, I, in the class, I attempt to be as apolitical as possible. I don't opine on most things political. What I will do, however, is give students information, give them facts. This is what one side is saying, and this is what the other side is saying. Let's take a look at CNN, MSN. Let's take a look at Fox News, and let's take a look at Breitbart. Let's look at the wide range of what people are saying, for example. And I teach them about biases because everybody in the media these days is biased one way or the other. There's very little objective reporting that goes on. And and then when it comes to any any topic whatsoever, you, you look at the facts, you look at the information, and and then you analyze it, you synthesize it, and you think for yourself. And that's what I want my students to do. So anyway, at the beginning, that said, at the beginning of, of class, oftentimes I will take a couple of minutes 
and I will allow students, I'll give them the opportunity to bring up topics that they're interested in, whether it's something going on in the news or school related or otherwise, a question that they may have about something, and we will discuss it in class. So I did this. It was a, it was a couple of weeks ago at the beginning of class. I said, oh, is, is there anything you guys want to talk about today? We'll, we'll take a couple minutes here at the beginning of class. And I had a student raise their hand and ask a, a very sincere question, serious question, but very sincere. And the student asked me, Mr. Smith, can the school force me to stand and say the Pledge of Allegiance? And I was taken aback by this question. So let me add some context here. At the school where I work, every day, the beginning of school, the school principal or the assistant principal will come on over the loudspeaker and lead the entire campus in the Pledge of Allegiance. And then they will give announcements and they have the, the school, AS, some of the ASB officers come on after that and they give announcements and things like this, or occasionally another teacher will step in and or clubs and things like that and make a brief announcement during the homeroom class period. And it's required for all students to stand up for the Pledge of Allegiance, whether or not they say it is up to them. And so I was a little taken aback by this student's question, but I appreciated the question. It was a very, it's a sincere question. And the fact that a student felt comfortable enough in my classroom to raise their hand and ask that question, I, I think is a good thing. So I decided to answer this student's question with a question. I said to the student, is it all right if I answer you with a question? I'm going to, like the sign says above my board here, question the assertion. I am going to ask you why you would not want to stand and say the Pledge of Allegiance. Why would you not want to do that? And the student said, of course, that's, that's fine if you ask me that, Mr. Smith. And proceeded to say to me that they would not want to stand up and say the Pledge of Allegiance because they did not believe in the statement that there is justice for all in the United States. And, and basically proceeded to say to me, the United States is an unjust and unfair country and, and then offer uh, the BLM talking points and, and, you know, George Floyd and the riots and where there is no justice and, and so on and so forth in the United States. And therefore the United States is a terrible country. Why should I stand up and say that there's justice for all? I don't agree with that. And I said, I said, well, thank you. I, I appreciated the student explaining that. And I figured that that's probably what they would say would, that would be their rationale. I proceeded to explain. I said, well, you know, let me, let me explain how I see the Pledge of Allegiance. I said, and I told the student, you know, technically, if the teacher gives you a directive to stand, the principal says stand over the loudspeaker, you must stand up. But nobody can force you to say the Pledge of Allegiance. It's, it's a personal thing. I said, but for me, when I say the Pledge of Allegiance, I am pledging allegiance to those values. Do you not believe that that is something our country should strive for. It's not a statement saying that our country is perfect. It is a statement of allegiance, of loyalty to our country and its founding principles, among which is justice, equal protection under the law, 14th Amendment stuff. Do you not believe, I asked all my sisters, let me ask you and all of you, do you not believe that is something that our country should stand for and strive for? Well, of course, Mr. Smith, yes. Then why wouldn't you stand up for that? Why wouldn't you stand up and say, because when I stand and I say the Pledge of Allegiance, I am not saying the United States is a perfect country and we're the most perfect of all and we have no problems. What I am saying is I am pledging my allegiance 
as a person, my loyalty to those values and to our country and to uphold them because that's what our country stands for. That is what the flag stands for. It stands for those values. Again, country is not perfect, but it stands for those values. And I am going to do everything in my power. And I'm trying to do it as a teacher. I feel that I make a difference. I feel I help our country become a better place by teaching young people civics. I'm going to do everything in my power to make those ideals a constant reality as much as possible in our country. Would you not want to stand for that? Why would you not want to stand for that? That's the way I see it. And it was kind of an aha moment, I think, for some of the students in class. And I said, you know, don't question me. Think about it. Go home and sleep on it. Think about it. And I said, I would, you know, I'd like to add a little bit more to this if it's all right. And I, and I said, and I walked over to the flag and I said, you see the flag here? And in the front of my classroom next to the board, I have a large American flag, three by five, up in the top corner next to the, the board in the front of the room. And that's the flag that we, and we say the Pledge of Allegiance every day. I put it up every year. I have it up there in the, that part of my classroom. So I pointed at the flag and I said, you know, to me, if somebody were to sit down during the Pledge of Allegiance or during the national anthem, sit down or not stand or be disrespectful, to me, it's kind of a slap in the face. It's not, not kind of, it is a slap in the face. It is very offensive to me. It offends me when people do that. Nevertheless, I would never take away their right to do so. I would not deprive somebody, would not say, no, you you can't sit down during the national anthem. Although I, I do think the NFL should have the right to fire somebody that does that. I mean, if that's part of your, your expectation as an employee, I mean, that's up to the NFL. But as an individual, I would not deprive somebody of that right. And I explained this to a student. I said, but it's a slap in the face to me. And anybody else who served who has served in the United States military or who's a family, a gold star family member, explain to him what a gold star family, somebody who has lost a member of, of their family in uh, two military services in combat. Anybody who served over the last 20 years knows somebody who has either been injured terribly or wounded or given their life. Many, many, many of us know somebody. We've stood there at the graveside or at the funeral next to the flag drape casket. And to me, it's a slap in the face to, to, to people who served and especially to their family members, to those who gave the last full measure of devotion. And I proceeded to explain to the students what the flag stands for, what it represents, the colors of the flag, the, the, the symbolism of the flag and what that means. And my students had never heard that before. Seniors in high school, had never heard that before. I think it was, you know, it's been about five minutes on it at the beginning of class. And I, I hope that my students, I think they did walked away, at least the students in that class period with a, a different perspective on patriotism and the flag. I'm going to tie this story in and the topic in general of lack of patriotic education or patriotism amongst young people, uh, a general disdain or disrespect, lack of respect for our country. And we are failing at this. And I, the story that I just shared with you kind of illustrates that, but it ties in with this topic. And let me just lead in here with a few headlines. This is from military times, sluggish military recruiting re, uh, worries Congress. Here's next one. This is from task and purpose. Army general declares Americans too fat or criminal to fight. And it's an article about recruiting problems. 
Here's one for you. The Navy is hoping eSports can help fix its recruiting troubles, going out and trying to recruit people using video games and going after gamers, if you will, and stuff like this. Navy, an article about Navy having trouble recruiting. Here's one from the Heritage Foundation, heritage.org. Army is falling dangerously short on recruitment. I could go on. All of the service branches have had a lot of trouble filling both officer and enlisted billets, especially enlisted. The Army is over 50% short of its recruiting goal for this year. And I'll get to that in a little bit here. But the way it works, let me kind of explain this for those of you who may not be familiar. The way it works is the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, now the Space Force, uh, Coast Guard, all of the services have billets. These are, are jobs that need to be filled. They have enlisted billets, officer billets, and these are jobs in different career fields. They know based on past experience and needs of the mission, how many people they need to recruit every year to fill these billets and hopefully retain enough of them who are experienced as they move up in skill level. Let me give you a for example. I served four years active duty in the Air Force in the military intelligence community as a cryptologic linguist. So when I went to enlist in the Air Force, I took the battery of tests that they give. It's called the ASVAB, the Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery, which tests a wide range of skills. And based on a, a potential recruit's scores on the ASVAB test, the, the services can determine what jobs they may be good for. And there are other tests that they can give. And so, for example, I took a test, uh, I believe they still give it, called the D-Lab, the Defense Language Aptitude Battery, which is a test that determines a person's capacity for learning foreign language. So I scored high enough on that test to qualify to be a linguist. And they sent me to the Defense Language Institute at the Presidio of Monterey in beautiful Monterey, California. It's an army post. I spent a little over a year there, and they taught me Russian. I took the Russian basic course, did quite well, graduated uh, one of the top in my class, gave the speech in Russian at our graduation and so forth. It was a, a great experience, great education I got, but I filled a billet in that career field. And at the end of my four-year enlistment, they tried very much to entice me to re-enlist, but I decided I didn't want to. They offered a bonus. In fact, they offered $10,000 a year, more or less is what it worked out to for every year that I would have re-enlisted. Uh, re so if I would have re-enlisted for another four-year hitch, it would have been a $40,000 bonus with half of it paid up front and the rest of it divided into eight or, or four different installments over the that I would have received over the next four years until I finished my enlistment. And these are the type of things that the military does to try to recruit and keep people. And also when I enlisted, I also got an, uh, a bonus for enlisting in a career field that was high, uh, a high need career field. That is, it's difficult. It's difficult to find people qualified to go into that career field and they want to keep people as they gain experience. And while I was in the service and it's like this in all branches of the service, I had to work to attain certain skill levels, whether it's think of it like apprentice journeyman, and so forth in the, you know, take your pick of, of technical profession, you know, like plumbers or electricians or things like this, very similar until you become a master at your trade. And, and it works the same in the military. And so the military knows how many people they need to enlist every year to fill billets for people who are retiring and then hopefully retain enough people who will stay in the service 
as they move up and fill the next, so everybody moves up and you recruit, recruit somebody new and you fill all the billets and you hope that you're able to do that. Well, we are in a very, very dangerous situation right now. And I'm going to tell you, it is my opinion that Joe Biden and his party, the Democrat party, those in control of the executive branch of our government right now, one of the most dangerous and reckless things that they have done are the decisions that they've made that are causing this dangerous for, uh, shortfall in recruiting and retention. It's not just new recruits. What you see happening in the services are people in the middle of their career. So in, in the service, 20 years, you retire. I tell my students, if you enlist at age 18, you do 20 years in theory. Now, I know guys that did this, you could retire at age 38 and have a second career and retirement benefits from your military service. So you have people that, or you could go longer, or you could do 30. There are people who are deciding to leave in the middle of a career. Usually once they get you 10 years, they figure they've got you, the services do. And you see the re-enlistment incentives start to diminish the closer you get to 20 years because they know they've got you. I mean, they offered me at the, after four years, they offered me $10,000 a year for every year when I, I would have re-enlisted into a high need career field at the time. But had I stayed, I knew guys that were, you know, had been in for 10 and they were going to re-enlist, you know, they're going to re-enlist for another four years. Their re-enlistment bonus was not as big because they figured they got them. But what's happening now is they have people in the middle of a career, 10 years in, 12 years in that are leaving people who are experienced pilots, people who are masters at their trade, at their profession, whatever it is, whether it's uh, jet engine mechanics or crew chiefs in the Navy or the Air Force, those are the guys that take care of the aircraft and make sure that they're ready to fly and fight, or whether it's your uh, warrant officers in the Army. Warrant officers are specialists in, in their profession. For example, pilots. A lot of the pilots that fly helicopters in the army are warrant officers. And that's what they do. They fly helicopters. You need them. You need to retain these people because if you don't, it's very hard to fill that slot, that billet. You can't go out and recruit somebody brand new and put them into a billet that is intended for somebody who is a master at their trade. And it's dangerous to take somebody who's not ready and promote them to that position prematurely. And we see in the services, a mass exodus of experience. And quite frankly, a lot of these people are being driven out of the service because of what is happening in all branches of the service. I'd like to read a little article here, article here for you. Uh, this is from Deseret.com. This is the Deseret News, a newspaper out of the Rocky Mountain Front in Utah, I believe uh, Salt Lake City. And this is by uh, Suzanne Bates. Military recruitment numbers are down. Are woke politics to blame? I read on here. The Army, Air Force, and Navy have struggled to meet their goals this year, while some conservatives say that the military has turned its back on its largest pool of recruits. The military is struggling to find recruits to fill its ranks. Some of the branches have responded by offering tens of thousands of dollars in signing bonuses, while the Army says it is so far behind its recruitment goals for this year that it is unlikely to catch up. The lingering question is, why aren't people signing up? 
While the official reasons given by the military, including fewer face-to-face -face recruitments during the pandemic, fewer young people who meet the physical fitness standards or physical standards for enlistment likely pay a role, play a role, some say it's because the military is too, quote, woke, turning off its normal constitu constituency of young conservative recruits. This lady hits it right on the nose. Here's another headline for you. This is from the Epoch Times. Dateline here is September 22nd, so this week. Military recruitment shortfall, direct a direct result of vaccine mandate, say GOP lawmakers. Let me read here. 47 Republican lawmakers recently expressed, quote, grave concerns about military readiness as a result of the Pentagon's mandate in a letter dated September 15th. The Epoch Times spoke to four of the lawmakers who signed the letter, which called on the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, and the Department of Defense to withdraw its COVID-19 vaccine mandate for service members. As a result of the vaccine mandate, eight percent of the army's approximately one million soldiers face expulsion the letter stated let me pause right there eight percent doesn't sound like a lot as a million soldiers eight percent that is significant that is a significant number the army doesn't uh, go out and recruit people it cannot it's very difficult to recruit somebody like i said that is a journeyman or a master at their particular skill set in the service and a lot of these people who are leaving this eight percent are who are leaving are people who are mid-career they're being forced out I, i'm going to read on here in the article the army has only met 52 percent of its fiscal year 2022 recruiting goal the letter added while we are primarily addressing the army's recruitment problem Representative Clay Higgins, Republican of Louisiana, said, This issue is a problem across the board for all our uniformed services. With no lack of respect to the other branches of the service, he said, The Army is the cornerstone of our military presence in the world. And I'll stop right there. That is true. I'm an Air Force guy. I did spend two years on the Army National Guard. I've experienced Army and Air Force. I spent another three years after that in the Air Force Reserve for a total of nine years active in reserve service. But the Army is the largest branch of the service. They have the most postings around the world, Europe, Asia, different places, and all across the all across the 50 states and U.S. territories. So he's right about that. Higgins, I'm going to read on here, Higgins and other GOP lawmakers agreed that the Army's failure to reach its recruiting goal is directly related to the military's vaccine mandate that was put into effect by Austin in August of 2021. This is clearly the case because 40% of men aged 18 to 24 have not taken the vaccine, Higgins explained. So in general, outside of the service, 40% of young men have opted not to take the vaccine. Representative Pete Stauber, Republican of Minnesota, emphasized that the mandate clearly disincentivizes 40% of recruits. Representative Mike Johnson, Republican of Louisiana, noted that in the Southeast, the Southern United States, the South, we would call it, which is the area which has the most enlisted persons, that number is over 50%, as in more than 50% of the young men aged 18 to 24 in the southeastern United States have opted not to be vaccinated for COVID. A large number of recruits, a disproportionately large number or larger number of young men from the south, the southeastern United States, enlist in military service. And I saw that when I was in the service, a lot of, we have a lot of our army posts are in the South. 
course, they're spread out across and Air Force too uh, in the south, and then in, in, in back east along the coast, we've got um, Marine Corps, right, and Navy, got Norfolk, but a lot of young men from the southeast historically traditionally go into the service and this 50 percent drop or, or shortfall when it comes to enlisted recruiting there i think definitely could be a correlation between this vaccine mandate policy and army recruiting and other recruiting into the other services so th these are some examples but it's not just that it's not just covid this is a problem and i've been tracking this for a while. I've been watching it for a while. Very frustrated. I've read a lot of stuff and a lot of veterans, not just me. There are a lot of veterans. I'm a member of the American Legion. Those guys, those old guys get together and they start talking. I'm one of, one of the youngest ones, I guess, in our group. They start talking and people are justifiably concerned and upset. People who are veterans of military service. I, well, I do this every year. I ask my students, what are your plans after high school? And I will always ask the question by raise of hands, how many of you are considering or would consider military as a post-secondary option? And 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when I first got into teaching, anywhere from 25 to 30% of the class, mainly boys, but you know, a few girls would raise their hand and say that they were, they would be interested in exploring that as an option. Sometimes I'd get up to, you know, up to close to half of them and say, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll listen to it. I'll, I would seriously consider that as an option. That number has slowly, it's steadily diminished. I asked that question this last week in my classes and I teach seniors. And I've mentioned that already. All of my students are seniors in high school. And I asked the question, about one, 2% of my students raised their hand and said that they would consider military service as an option after graduation. And that that ties back in with my original point here with a story I told with patriotic education. And there is a general disdain uh, for military service. You see schools and colleges prohibiting military recruiters from coming onto campus. When I have military recruiters come in and present in my class, every year I invite, usually it's the Army and the Marines that come in and present to the seniors, I, whether they're interested or not, I have them present and say their piece to the seniors. Every year I have a couple of students, at least one, whose parent has signed a form, it's, it's uh, or not a lot, when they do the enrollment packet, one of the questions is, is, can a recruiter talk to you, your student, a military recruiter, and there's their parents that say no, don't want them talking to my kid, keep them away from them. And so those students have to go somewhere else, go sit in a library or something and do another assignment while the recruiter's in my classroom. This Deseret News article about wokeism and its effect, the vaccine mandate is just one. Let me give you this headline, and this is from Fox News, headline also from yesterday, Air Force, and this, is, this was a big one, you've probably heard about it already. Air Force Academy diversity training tells cadets to use words that include all genders and to drop mom and dad. This was a diversity and inclusion or DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion presentation that was done at the United States Air Force Academy in Colorado, Colorado Springs, Colorado. This is the type of thing, along with the COVID mandates that are, that is turning off. And by, by the way, I'll interject here. I failed to mention this. 
most of the people, at least when I was in the service, politically speaking, most of the people that I served with, if not all of them, vast majority, were very, very conservative or center-right. You know, you're out in the field or you're doing your job. You talk with your colleagues and you, you, you talk with them. In fact, they become like your family. The military becomes your family when you're, you know, you're away from home and you're gone and that's your family and they're your coworkers and you're hanging out together and, and off duty or outside you talk, you talk about these things and generally speaking, very conservative when in the year 2000, that's why Al Gore went to court to try to get all of those military ballots not counted in the Florida election. They, they were absentee ballots from military members over the seas because he knew that probably 70%, at least of those ballots that came from the military overseas are probably more in the year 2000, we're going to go for George W. Bush, not for him. And he went to court to try to get them not counted because they arrived late and no fault to those who cast the vote overseas. Just making the point there. And so when they see things, when conservatives, young conservatives or their parents see things like this, it, it's cause for concern. I mean, do you really want to affiliate yourself with this organization? if it's going to go woke. And some of the things that they said in this Air Force presentation are absolutely, be, they're beyond uh, ridiculous and idiotic. They're scary. I'll read here one of the quotes here. It's got one of the, the slides. It says, some families are headed by single parents, grandparents, foster parents, two moms, two dads. Consider using parent or caregiver instead of mom and dad. Seriously, Who's going to ditch mom or dad? The presentation further states, use words that include all genders, folks, or y'all instead of guys. Partner, use partner instead of boyfriend or girlfriend. It says that you should not say that you are colorblind or I don't see color when it comes to race, but you should be color conscious. You should say, we see, I see color patterns. In other words, I see somebody's color of the, I notice the color of your skin. I notice the, the color of your hair. I notice it. That's what they're saying. It does go on to say and value people for their uniqueness and diversity. You know what? When I served in the military, I don't ever remember the military, at least the, the air force that I served in was the ultimate meritocracy. Hopefully we can return to this meritocracy. I served with people from all over the United States. In fact, from all over the world, people who immigrated here from other places, people of all races and ethnicities and religious beliefs. The United States Armed Forces is probably the most diverse group of individuals you will find anywhere and most functional. I never remember ever once looking at somebody in the service or seeing anybody else do this, looking at somebody in uniform that I worked with, that was part of my family, my military family, because that, like I said, they become your family. You leave, you go far away, that's your family. You get along with some of them, some of them you don't get along with, but you have each other's back. And what mattered most was how you did your job. Do you have my back? Are you carrying your part of the load? Not skin color, nothing else. We, we ditch all of that. And what's most important 
is what you do, how you do it, how you treat other people and the uniform that you wear. The respect and the deference I give to somebody while in uniform is based on all of those things and whether or not they had more stripes on their sleeve and experience than I did. And if they did, I wanted to learn from them. Didn't matter who they were. And this type of thing, this type of thinking here is absolutely destructive and it will sow seeds of discord. And it is absolutely one of the worst things. Like I said, one of the Joe Biden is absolutely derelict in his duty as commander in chief of the armed forces to permit this to happen. And I believe it's calculated. We are in, in the process of a Stalinist type purge, but instead of using bullets, they're destroying people's reputations and they're destroying their careers and they're driving out those that they don't want. And we see it right now at the top. The people who are getting promoted to the top in the top brass are those who are willing to play the game and they don't care. They will drink the Kool-Aid and they will tow the party line just like the Stalinist purges of 1937. If you don't, if you don't know what I'm talking about, leading up Stalin, Joseph Stalin, leader of Soviet Russia, the Soviet Union, after the death of Vladimir Lenin, all the way up to World War II, through World War II, and he died in the 1950s. But Stalin was so paranoid. He was so paranoid of and, and wary of the military that he conducted various purges, the worst one being between 1937, late 1930s, leading up to World War II. And he took a lot of people in the military and threw them into gulags, and he took a lot of them and just straight up killed them. People of all ranks, lower officer ranks. And when World War II kicked off and the Nazis in Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet Union, there was a, just a dearth of leadership. The people that got promoted got promoted because they were good commies. And they said the right things. Those who were capable leaders were either in the gulag or dead. And Stalin had to go pull a bunch of guys out of the gulag and put them back into uniform to fight the war. Marshal Rokossovsky had steel teeth because he was one of the Soviet marshals and the leader of the Soviet armies. And he had steel teeth because in the gulag, he got all his teeth knocked out. KGB left him toothless. So... What we are seeing right now is a Stalinesque purge of the United States armed forces. This is a dangerous thing. While our enemies prepare for war, China right now is preparing for open conflict with the United States of America and our allies. China has aims on greater Asia, just as Japan did in the 1930s. They want to control Asia. They want to control access to resources in Asia and access to resources in other parts of the world. That's what their Belt and Roads Initiative is all about. And while they're doing that, while they're preparing for war, this is what we're doing. If you read on in all of the reporting on this uh, diversity and diversity, equity, and inclusion training in the Air Force Academy, they go on to say that they're going to have uh, some airmen in the Air Force and or at the academy. And I would imagine that this uh, will spread throughout the Air Force. They're going to have basically what is, amounts to DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion commissars. Now, if you're familiar with history 
and the Soviet Union and the Soviet military, each military unit had a commissar who was an army officer, but he was a member of the Communist Party and it was his, he did not have necessarily command responsibility, but it was his responsibility to make sure that the unit, whatever unit he was attached to, functioned according to Communist Party dogma. And it was their job to teach and preach communist principles and communist ideology. I remember one of the things I did after I went and I learned Russian, they sent me to the uh, Air Intelligence School at Goodfell Air Force Base and learned all about Russian military. And the Russian military today is basically the Soviet military, only not Soviet military. It's that their doctrine is the same. The way they train is very similar and not a lot of um, freedom to think and maneuver and, and not much flexibility. But one of the things that I learned at that school, and, and also when I was at the language school, one of our instructors was a, was a Russian guy who got out of the Soviet Union, had served, he was a tanker in the Russian army and he was, he was there teaching us Russian. He told us all about what it was like and they would spend in the Russian military a certain amount of time every week or every day receiving political instruction from the commissar. And they would all get together and sit down and they had to say the right things. And the commissar, and, and you know, there was more than one commissar and the commissars were watching what you were doing and making sure that you were doing what you're supposed to and weren't doing what you weren't supposed to. You, you were being a good commie. So what they're doing in the Air Force is they're going to have essentially commissars, political commissars, that are going to, they're going to identify them at the Air Force Academy with a braided uh, tassel that's going to go around their arm on their shoulder, attached on the shoulder, that is, uh, I believe it's a purple colored um, rope or tassel around their shoulder. You know, it's coming from somebody in the Air Force, that is a common thing to see in Air Force training units. Different airmen will be given different, you could say, command responsibility. For example, uh, in our training units, we would have a flight commander and element leaders and things like this. And the flight commander wore a braided rope on the left shoulder of their uniform, uh, was red colored braided rope. And the element leaders wore yellow ones. A chaplain's assistants wore white ones, things like this. Their commissar is going to wear a purple braided, you know, rope on their shoulder on their uniform, purple ropes, uh, a quote right here, um, Let's see, they will uh, be given a purple rope to wear across their left shoulder, symbolizing their position as a diversity representative so they can advise students on diversity. Never would I have ever imagined something like this. It's, it's gotten to the point where we see one of the first things that Joe Biden did after he was elected, he signed a stack of executive orders. They had him sitting there I don't, I don't think he even really understood or knew of everything he was signing, but they had this stack there for him, reversing and undoing everything that Trump had done as much of it as he could on day one that he took office. And one of the things that he did was he reversed Trump's policy of not allowing people uh, who suffer from gender dysphoria, people who are transgendered, and I'm not 
you know, trying to, um, in any way, I guess I could say, be hateful with what I'm saying here. I'm just trying to say the truth uh, and allowed those people to enlist and also ordered the military to pay for gender reassignment surgeries and things like this for people already in or people who enlist. So if you want gender reassignment surgery and you can't afford it, all you got to do is join the service, pick a branch. And then once you're in, say, Hey, I want to go down this path and they will help them transition. And once a person does that and begins to go down that road in the service, they move into the, the, if so if it's, let's say it's a man that wants to transition to woman or vice versa, they move into, if you're a male, you move into the female barracks and you live if you're, if you're an enlisted person. So you could wind up with a, with a roommate that is in the process of transitioning. And what people don't realize is that in the service, in a lot of the conditions that you're, that you will work in, if you enlist, there is not much privacy. Let me give you a, for example here in basic training. And even when I was uh, in the national guard or going out and doing, doing field exercises in the reserve and stuff like that, you're living in an open, it could be an open tent with a bunch of uh, bunks in it or in basic training, it's an open bay barracks. And in the, in the, when I was in the army national guard, we spent a lot of time on drill weekends or, or things like this, staying in barracks. Some of them are really old built during world war II that are open bay. So let me describe that to you. If you don't know what I'm talking about, imagine a big room, 60 or 70 feet long, 20 or 30 feet wide with two rows of bunks down, down it, down the road, down the length lengthwise lockers against the walls. You got wall lockers and it's all open. Maybe you've seen it in the movies, you know, go, go watch the movies. It's been depicted pretty well down at one end or the other, you will have a latrine and the showering area is just there's there are no stalls it's all open and some of the latrines there aren't partitions between the toilets it's open there is no privacy you'll see i i remember seeing doing this in basic training and and again in the reserve and guard and and out you know doing field stuff 20 or 30 or in, the, in basic training it was like 60 of us in there 60 70 all in there together men young men you know you go and shower. I remember we would, we would take, it was actually quite a feat. I, you would never imagine that this would be able to happen. You take 60 or 70, 19 and 20 year old guys, and all of them go into the shower and take a shower in 15, 20 minutes or less shower and shave and be dressed and ready to go. And when they're done, not a drop of water left on the floor in the shower or in the latrine or anywhere, all of it cleaned up. That was quite amazing. I'm sure their mothers would have been amazed by that once they saw what we had done, but there's no privacy. You're moving around in and out of there. Would you want to live like that with somebody of the opposite gender in the process of transitioning with genitalia of the opposite gender? Of course you would not. I wouldn't. And so these types of things are counterproductive and harmful to the efficiency of the United States armed forces. Uh, another area I'll go, I'll go down this road and this might make some people mad. One of the things that Biden did is he opened up combat arms professions. The, the, our services have done this, opened up combat arms professions to females. Combat arms professions are 
career fields where you have the possibility of entering into direct combat with the enemy. For example, infantry or armor, something like this in the army or the Marine Corps. Historically, we did not do that. And they went down this road and they did it anyway in the name of equity and inclusion. Even though, for example, the Marine Corps commissioned a study and their study showed that infantry units that were co-ed, male, female, way underperformed all male units at, at the same tasks. The all male units were more effective and more efficient, carry more weight, move faster, things like this, go farther in a shorter period of time, all of these types of things. In spite of those studies and that evidence, the Marine Corps decided to go down the road of co-ed infantry. They opened up combat arms to females, to infantry to females. The army has gone and changed their physical fitness standards or PT standards, physical training standards in an effort to enable females to enter combat arms career fields. Here's a headline for you right here. And this is from August last month. Uh, this is from army times. The army is working on a tactical bra. I mean, of all the things that we could be spending time and money and working on. So these, these types of things are what are hurting recruiting that are causing young men, a lot of them conservative, to think twice about enlisting. That vax mandate's a big one. I think without that, they, they would still be down, but maybe not quite as bad as they are right now. But nobody wants to belong to this service. Nobody like Look at Joe Biden. He's the commander-in-chief. The, the guy can't remember where he's at half the time. Who wants that guy to be your leader? Who wants him to be your leader? You see him give the speech, the, the Dark Brandon speech up in front of the you know, he looks like Adolf Hitler up there, Joseph Stalin, and he's got the Marine. He puts the Marines back there behind him. What Marine, not me, if I was in the service, I would not want to be that guy standing back there behind him, getting used as a political tool, as a pawn. Look what he did in Afghanistan. He he hung our guys out to dry. It's a very sad thing and it's a dangerous thing. And it is an indictment of wokeism, of liberal, leftist, Marxist infection in the armed services. Leftism, liberalism, Joe Biden, the Democrats, they destroy everything they touch. They are in the process of destroying our economy. They've destroyed our border security. And they are in the process of destroying our national security when it comes to the defense of this nation. And Joe Biden is derelict in his duty as commander-in-chief of the United States of America. The United States Armed Forces exists for one reason, and that is to fight and win our nation's wars. And if you simplify it even more than that, let's take it a step further. The United States Armed Forces exist to kill and destroy our enemies in the most effective manner possible, period. And our leadership has forgotten that. And I think there are some people pulling the strings who understand that very well, and they know what they're doing. 
and they think the world is going to be a better place without a strong United States. Check out Year of the Rooster, first 72 hours on Amazon.com. It's available in Kindle format for $2.99 or for free if you have Kindle Unlimited $7.99 paperback version. Year of the Rooster is a novel of historical fiction about war between the United States and China. Far-fetched? Could China pursue global dominance via conflict? If one looks to human history for an answer to this question, the answer is yes. So far, all great empires were born of conflict. All great empires and nations have historically had to fight to maintain their place of dominance. What then would a conflict of this sort look like? How would it begin? The historical record is rife with instances of surprise attack. If you want to be scared out of your mind, take a look at Year of the Rooster, first 72 hours on Amazon.com. This last week, uh, September 14th to the 16th anyway, the Family Research Council, if you're familiar with that organization, held its second annual Pray, Vote, Stand Summit. And as part of this event, they hosted a forum um, where they had Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin and some others discuss uh, several different things. Uh, the topic was America on the world stage. For So what I want to do is play a little excerpt of that. And this is Lieutenant General William Boykin, retired Army General. And for those of you who are not aware, a Lieutenant General is a three-star general. The highest ranking officer grade is uh, would be a a general, and that would be a four-star general. So he came one short of that. He served as Undersecretary of the Defense of Defense for Intelligence under President George W. Bush. He uh, spent 13 years in the Delta Force. He held a number of high-profile positions and participated in high-profile missions, including the uh, 1980 Iran, Iran hostage rescue attempt, which failed. He commanded the unit that hunted down Pablo Escobar and killed him in Colombia. He was involved in the Black Hawk Down incident in Mogadishu, fought in Mogadishu. Uh, he's, I look at his uh, ribbons, uh, you know, you look at somebody's ribbon rack and it tells you what they, you know, the medals that they've earned and what they've done. And he's got the combat infantry, he's a Vietnam veteran. He's got the, he's got the, the expert infantry badge with a wreath on it, meaning that he earned that expert infantry badge. And then he got into, he participated in combat. Uh, he has a, it looks like a bronze star and he's got the purple heart medal. Uh, with an oak leaf cl cluster on it, meaning that he was wounded twice. So this man knows what he's talking about. He commanded, um, participated a lot in special operations uh, stuff, but uh, commanded a Delta Force, uh, commanded uh, different special operations groups and things like that. He's published several books. He's an ordained minister. Uh, he's a Christian. So I want to play a little bit of he gets in and he talks about this a little bit about the United States and uh, the United States Armed Forces and how the world views us and kind of touches on some of these topics that I've talked about in here. I, I want to I want to play for you what he said, and it, I think he made some great points. So I'm going to roll it. General, I want to go to you now, kind of building on what we were just talking about with Afghanistan. You know, the, this administration says that they're making all their decisions grounded in fact and evidence. Um, 
they're also trying to hide the evidence, I think, of what happened in Afghanistan. But I want to speak to this from a standpoint of the implications of what happened a little over a year ago in Afghanistan. What message did that send globally to other government leaders that may see America as, a, as an adversary? Yeah, you know, it, uh, first of all, I think that will go down in history as the worst foreign policy failure in U.S. history. And uh, it, every decision that was made was wrong. So what did that say to the rest of the world? It said that we have weak leadership. And you have to ask yourself, uh, why did uh, Vladimir Putin refrain from attacking Ukraine during uh, the Trump administration and then... He went in, you know, with barrels blazing uh, under the uh, Biden administration. And I will tell you, I think a lot of that goes back to the weakness that people, both our adversaries and our friends, recognized in the Biden administration. They recognize that it's weak, it's indecisive, and it doesn't make sense to them why our president and the administration are making some of the decisions they're making and it's not just uh, getting out of Afghanistan. You've got to look at the climate, the Paris Climate Change Treaty. You've got to look at going back into the JCPOA with Iran. What, what's the value to the United States and what's the value to our allies to put Iran on a pathway to nuclear warheads? And, uh, and I think that uh, this, we're going to continue to see the consequences of not only the pullout of Afghanistan, but the stupid decisions that have been made by the administration, one of which is, and I'll, and I'll finish with this, uh, he's, our president shut down our pipeline and then turned around and went to the Saudis, which by the way, look at the number of people on 9-11 that flew those airplanes that were Saudis. And we know they've been a major sponsor of terrorism. but. He goes to the Saudis, he goes to the Russians, he goes to others and says, we really need oil. Would you pump us some oil? Does that make sense to anybody? It's, it's the most foolish thing. They see that kind of decision making, that kind of thought process, and they see us as being weak, and they see this as a time when they can take advantage of us. Before I, I turn to the impact this has had on our relationship with China, I. I I think I gotta ask a question that's probably on the minds of a lot of people. So what is driving our foreign policy decisions? What's, why is our military leaders in this administration making such fundamental errors in the way they're conducting our affairs overseas? Well, I know you're a Marine, but surely you're not asking me to think like Joe Biden. <laughs> I, th I, think that I think he's driven by uh, several uh, agendas. I think he's driven by the uh, climate change or the global warming agenda. That's, that's big with him. Uh, and that's why, part of why he's down on the energy. And then I think he's, he's driven by the LGBT community and their agenda. Is there an intentional effort on the left? And I'm not necessarily saying this president, but he does seem to be on the, the strings of the left to hollow out our military and make our military ineffective? 
I, there's no question in my mind about it. You can't explain it any other way than the deliberate effort to do just what you said, hollow out our military, make them less effective. And they're, these globalists, that is really what this administration is full of is globalists. They're, they're funded by, they're supported by, they're, they're encouraged by the globalists. They want us to become part of this global government that they, they see as the utopia of government in the worldwide. And, and as a result of that, you cannot have a military, a strong military, that would be the single thing that might stop you from achieving your objectives. And that's what we, we have always had as a military that could fight all enemies, foreign and domestic. Okay, so I want you to, I know you can do more, but three facts to back that up, that this administration is taking actions that are intentionally weakening our, weakening our military. They're throwing people out of the military today because they won't take a vaccination based on a number of reasons, part of which is religious reasons. For some, it's not for all. And at the same time, they're turning around and writing old generals like me a note saying, we need help recruiting because we can't recruit. We, we just can't recruit enough people. Well, let me explain to you how this thing of mathematics works. You get rid of all of them, and then those that are watching from the outside say, I don't want any part of that. And those on the inside, many of them leave on their own. So that is, is one thing. Secondly, the most important thing that our military does in peacetime is prepare for war, period. And Douglas MacArthur stood in the mess hall at West Point and said to the people in 1963, the, the cadets said, your mission remains determined, fixed, inviolable. It is to win the nation's wars. That means you have to be in a constant state of readiness. And when you get out and, and you put all this woke nonsense, and I started to say something else, but I, <laughs> I, think, I think I want to keep my job for a while longer. Right. So, and it's hyphenated, by the yeah, way. That's right. Okay, but when you, when you, you spend time putting those young men and women that are supposed to be preparing to meet the enemy head on, and you, you spend time going after them to do uh, critical race theory, uh, inclusion, tolerance, all of these things that have nothing to do with readiness and everything to do with the agenda of the administration. Uh, you are doing them an injustice and ultimately you're gonna pay for the price for that. So. The general is spot on there, and I agree with him that what Joe Biden is doing, or at least those who are pulling the strings in these decisions that he is making in foreign policy and diplomacy and so forth, and domestic policy combined with that, are putting the United States, and not just the United States, the world in a very, very dangerous situation. And I don't see the world as having been in a situation this precarious as far as possibility of global conflict since pre-World War II. And at the end, at the very end there, the general quoted Douglas MacArthur at West Point in 1963. I'd like to quote here, former president of the United States, commander-in-chief of the Army of the Potomac that defeated the South and accepted the surrender of Robert E. Lee at Appomattox Courthouse, Ulysses Grant. And this is what he said about war. I have never advocated war except as a means of peace. So seek peace, but prepare for war. Because war, war never changes. War is like winter, and winter is coming. There is no such thing as perpetual peace in humanity. 
any student of human history understands that conflict is part of the human experience and part of human existence. It's a utopian thought to think that someday there will be no conflict. In fact, if you're a Christian believer, that's not going to happen until the Lord returns. And until that time, humanity will be marked by conflict. So there is no such thing as a post-war period. In fact, every period, interwar period, is a pre-war period, if you look at it from a military standpoint. That's the way our armed forces have historically looked at preparation for war. Every single period, peace, quote, peacetime period is a period of preparation to fight the next war and win it. And we have deviated from that severely. Well, what's the solution? Again, I vote, I've said it before many times, we have to vote. We have to win as many seats in Congress, conservatives in Congress, and we have to retake the White House. You have to, the only way we do this is we write the ship. As far as military recruiting, if I were to suggest something there, ROTC, the junior ROTC program used to be in most high schools. And if you're not familiar with that, the junior ROTC program is similar to uh, the university ROTC program at, at the university or college level. The different service branches will sponsor college students, essentially pay for their education, and while they are a, you know, they are an ROTC cadet, they take military courses and they have military instructors at the university. When they graduate, they go into the service as a, as a junior officer. And for example, in the army as a second lieutenant, and they serve for a period of time in exchange for having their university education paid for. In high schools, it used to be very prolific junior ROTC programs where you had somebody who was a retired or veteran, somebody's retired military or veteran who came into the school that was received training. They still do this just on a, on a smaller scale. Many, many schools don't have this anymore and go into the schools and they have an actual program within the school of cadets and they have a class. Kids can take it high, in high schools. Kids take the class and they have a uniform and they wear it once a week and they the course is designed to prepare them for military service or to expose them to what it would be like to military service and it's it's a, it's a good opportunity it helps them to learn discipline effective time management and a bunch of other things that will help them with their education and when they get out of high school it's I mean it's up to them whether or not they go into the military or not go into the military a big push to encourage that and fund that something like that would go a long way you could go out and you could create a program to encourage, and some states have this, encourage veterans like myself to go into education. I am the only veteran on our staff in the whole high school. In our school district, there may be one other person, I don't know if there is, that's a veteran, and get more veterans into the schools. I've sat and I've listened. Every year I have the Army and I have the Marines. They're the two that will come and present to my, my students, the seniors in high school. And I sit and I listen to their presentations and holy cow, they could do a lot better. These guys have all gone to recruiting school and they come stand in my classroom and bore people to death for 45 minutes and then leave. You know, well, they do that to each class period. You know, they talk for half an hour, 40 minutes or whatever. They'll, they'll get attention from some of the kids and maybe they'll get, you know, some that take interest, but they could do a whole lot better. Their, their pedagogy and their delivery and things like that. So, I mean, there are things that they could do, but without fixing the problems that, that I've mentioned that, that have come up in this and eliminating exercising completely all wokeness from the armed forces, it's not going to get better. Anyway, that's all I've got for today in this episode and hope you enjoyed it. 
please, uh, if you have any suggestions or comments or anything like that, the way to contact me is through Truth Social. You can create an account, go to uh, Truth Social. You can open it in an internet browser. I know you can't get it. Google has blocked it. Just open your browser, you know, Google Chrome or Internet Explorer, whatever. You can create an account and log in that way. That's the way I access it. And you can follow me, message me on there on Truth Social. Look for Smith Talk on Truth Social. And otherwise, thanks for listening. Until next time.